There are 150 million trees that disappear into rayon and viscose fabrics every year. That is slated to double within the next decade, which makes viscose and rayon one of the most aggressive growing threats to forest ecosystems around the world. Why do we need to be wary of buying clothes and textiles made of rayon and viscose, perhaps even if they come from sustainably managed forests? What qualifies a forest to be considered as an ancient forest? And why is their stringent and immediate protection from further deforestation vital to our planet's health? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and sponsor Buffy, which makes bedding that's earth-friendly and cruelty-free. Its newest comforter is called The Breeze, made 100% from eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and to keep us cool and comfortable all night long. More on that later, along with a discount code, but for now, to a conversation with Nicole Rycroft, founder and executive director of Canopy, which is an international nonprofit organization that works collaboratively with over 750 companies to protect our ancient and endangered forests. The organization famously helped to green the Harry Potter books, so maybe you may have heard of them from that, but otherwise they work with a host of well-known companies from around the world, which you'll hear about shortly as well. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, I was lucky. I grew up in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, and my grandmother had a really infectious love of wild places. And I think layered on top of her plonking me down in front of wildlife documentaries as a kid, (laughs) I grew up fairly close, even though I grew up in Sydney, which is a big city on the east coast of Australia, I grew up close to sort of like a, a nature reserve. And so the smells of the eucalyptus trees are released when it gets really hot in the middle of summer and the colors are really vibrant and the Australian bush is really noisy, kind of like Australians, noisy (laughs) birds, cicadas. And so it's just such a sensory experience being in the bush in Australia that I think that along with my grandmother's love just kind of wove an appreciation and a love of wild places into my fabric at a very early age. And I feel so incredibly lucky to Mm. have carried that with me through life. And what was it that crystallized your dedication to wanting to protect our forest? So what was it that led you to see that our forest needed this protection and restoration? I think for me, there are a couple of things. When I was in my mid-20s, I was a national level rower in Australia and um, And I got a virus that basically knocked out my immune system. And I went from being an elite level athlete in Australia to not being able to walk to the corner shop and back. And that is such an incredibly humbling experience uh, when you're in your 20s and have a sense of invincibility and are kind of in peak physical performance. And it's you know, it's, it was a brutally hard time in life. My doubles partner and coach went to the World Championships and I stayed at home and, and was really sick. But it also really helps helped me focus on 
what was really important to me in life and where I wanted to be dedicating the majority of my life force. Um, and so I would say that illness was an incredible gift. When I recovered from that illness enough to, to travel, I spent a two years uh, in Southeast Asia traveling and doing volunteer work. And, and part of that time I spent volunteering on the Burmese border, documenting the link between human rights violations and environmental degradation. And through that work and interviews with child soldiers and civilians who had been dislocated by a civil war that ran there for a long time, it really it crystallized for me that it didn't really matter whether it was human rights violations or environmental degradation, that it was all happening under the rubric of the global economy, mm. and that unsustainable demand was driving environmental destruction as well as undermining uh, human rights in, in many parts of the world. And so I had already decided that I was moving to Canada at that point. And so I felt what an incredible opportunity that I'm moving to the belly of the beast in terms of global consumption to be able to kind of harness that purchasing power that we have in North America and in, and in other places around the world where we have more consumeristic uh, societies to harness that purchasing power to help drive positive change back through the supply chain to communities and landscapes on the ground, mm. as opposed to the current kind of almost unintended and, and inadverted trail of destruction that we reap. And so I founded Canopy 20 years ago, really with the belief that we could be doing things in a fundamentally smarter way, that there was no need for us to use 800-year-old trees to make you know, the Twilight series novels or pizza boxes or the clothing that hang in our wardrobes. And so I started Canopy with that, with that context of the global economy and the business adage that the, the customer is always right. And the more money they spend, the more influence they tend to have. And so just recognizing that business leaders generally care just as much about having a stable climate and, and clean water and fresh air. And they also have the opportunity to leverage the purchasing power that they have with their supply chains um, mm. and the millions of dollars that they spend on environmental goods every year. And so it was with that context that I started Canopy with the mission of protecting the world's forest species and climate. And for our listener who may be hearing about your work for the first time, how do you go about carrying out this mission? So I know you work primarily with companies in their sourcing, or what does that picture look like? Currently, we work with about 750 of the forest industry's largest corporate customers. So wow. we work with big publishers like Scholastic and Penguin Random House or The Guardian Media Group, the Global Mail, big commercial printers big fashion brands that use a lot of wood-based fabrics like rayon and viscose, so be it H&M and Zara or Levi's, uh, The Gap, luxury designers like Stella McCartney. And what we do is we help them to develop environmental policies that help ensure that they're contributing towards safeguarding ancient and endangered forests. Uh, obviously, that starts with ensuring that they're not sourcing from ancient and endangered forests and that they also help to start set the market and draw through to market products that are fundamentally more sustainable, these next generation solutions. So paper and packaging that's made from straw left over after the food grain harvest rather than trees from high carbon forests or clothing that's made from recycled clothing or microbial cellulose 
rather than trees from orangutan habitat, mm. and that they help also spark uh, sustainable forestry on areas that don't need to be protected and conserved, and, and sustainable forestry being sort of best measured by whether it has forest stewardship certification. To help us understand the importance of this work, can you paint a picture for us in terms of what our current forest protection versus deforestation looks like today? I mean, if we were, um, you know, we have a relationship with forests and we're a really, really bad date. In fact, we're such a bad date that forests should put a restraining order uh, mm. in place uh, <laughs> with us. Um, so deforestation and forest degradation are both incredibly problematic for the state of the world's forests. Deforestation is the total clearing of forests and replacement of that natural forest with a with a com- either a different crop or a monoculture. That's often what we see in the tropics. There are about 27 soccer fields of forests cleared every minute and lost to deforestation. And it's estimated that about 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from deforestation every year. And then on top of that, we have forests that are degraded. Um, So they're not technically deforested, but they are significantly disrupted and so and degraded as a result of human action, be it industrial logging or urbanization or agriculture. And that significant disruption of the integrity of the forest undermines the climate and biodiversity and freshwater systems. And it's estimated that 82% of the world's remaining forests are degraded. And the UN just yesterday released a really sobering report that shows that We've lost half of our natural ecosystems by area and that a million species are on the brink of extinction. And that's largely because we as a society consume too much too fast. And when it comes to forests, we log an area of forest equivalent in size to Costa Rica every year. And since 1990, that equates to you know, the world having lost forests that are about equivalent to half the size of the continent of South America, one of the world's largest continents. Mm. It's at a scale that, and it's happened so quickly with the advent of mechanization, chainsaws, large capacity mills for processing, just the speed at which everything moves now. And if we contrast kind of the impact that we as a species have been and have been having on forest ecosystems with what science is telling us, there is a call and an increasing urgency uh, from the scientific community that we actually need to be protecting half of what remains of the world's forests, as well as regenerating many of the areas and lands that have already been degraded or deforested. Mm. Well, this unsustainable demand and overconsumption that you talked about, what do you think is the key driving force behind this? Like, what is what is allowing this to even happen? Is it the undervaluing of nature in our economy? Is it a lack of regulations or policies not being or laws not being enforced? That is a really good question. That's like the $64 million question. As with most of these things, there's a complexity uh, to it. So in some places, it's that regulations are, are lacking. And in other areas, the regulations are quite decent, actually, but the will and resources for enforcement are, are what's lacking. Mm. Definitely our societies have moved into a level of consumerism that is 
almost impossible to sustain. We buy more clothing, 400% more clothing now than we did 25 years ago. So we as individuals, as well as kind of humanity more broadly, has just kind of sped up the volume of, of the world's resources that we use. And we now basically hit a point midway through the year whereby we've used up basically our natural our natural bank account for the year in terms of what the earth can sustain. But I think that all fits under this broader uh, rubric of the social license that we provide for the degradation of our environment and wild places. Um, and I think that's the piece that we really need to need to shift fundamentally. Uh, mm. It's just the way that we value wild places and the clean air and the clean water and the stable climate and that they provide for us, the inspiration and the, and the spiritual sanctuary that they provide for us, as well as the habitat that they provide for the millions of other species that we share this planet. I feel like part of the issue is that consumers today are mostly disconnected from the sites of these destructions, so they may not be feeling the impact of their day-to-day choices and therefore feel like they have to shift their behavior. So for consumers who are completely disconnected, why should they care? Or how, how should we get them to care? Yeah, and I think that's something that, you know, those of us in the conservation community grapple with all the time and, and probably have not done a spectacular job at, or we obviously haven't done a particularly good job at it, because I think, you know, so much of the world's population now live in cities. And there is that natural disconnection from lush forest landscapes or clean rivers that still have freshwater fish in them. I think that, you know, when you read the environmental headlines that are around us, it's pretty depressing. You know, it's sobering and it's, you know, sometimes tempting to think, oh my God, like there's nothing that I can do as an individual and I may as well either just crawl back in under the covers or, you know, continue on my merry path and and just kind of tune it out. And I think that it's just human nature that no one wants to join the army of the glum. Mm. And sometimes as a as the conservation community, community has spoken about all the dire headlines and depressing news without necessarily enabling people to see the solutions and how they can contribute to them. And so I think that's where, you know, podcast series such as this are are really empowering and important because we do uh, live in challenging times ecologically and absolutely, like ours are the generations that are going to, you know, largely shape the future of our world and the future of humanity And what an exciting time that is to be alive and and to be able to engage. I am seeing increasingly people becoming more conscious of their choices through learning more about these issues and then definitely learning about the solutions that they can be a part of. So that's definitely an important piece of the puzzle. But how do you think we can frame this to get policymakers to care? Because something that's really frustrating is that our economic system values only the material things that we can extract from nature and not its ongoing inherent biological activity and life that are necessary to support the health of every living species on our planet. So what's the incentive for, for policymakers to care? 
Yeah, and I think as individuals, we all have influence over that. Uh, when we vote, uh, we need to put the environment up at the top of our agenda. When we spend dollars at the cash register, we need to put the environment up at the top of our agenda and really support brands that are taking leadership, support political candidates that are showing leadership on climate change and, and biodiversity conservation. And increasingly, there are opportunities, right? Like, uh, I think for us as an organization, what we've done is we've really focused in on how can we bridge that chasm that's traditionally existed between the conservation community and the business community to really help broker solutions at scale. And part of the reason for that was just looking at the structure of, of our global economy. And part of it was also looking at that there had basically been decades of fairly lackluster political leadership on environmental issues and recognizing the incredible influence that business leaders could have in this space, given that they spend millions and sometimes billions of dollars on packaging and wood-based fabrics like rayon and viscose and paper every year. And what we've found is that the business leaders have increasingly stepped in and picked up the baton in terms of environmental leadership. And so we work with many executives that uh, are really incredibly powerful advocates for environmental conservation. And because business is important to government, what we find is that if we can build a, a kind of like a critical mass of support from the business community, then that can often create a space into which government can then step into and change policy. Mm. And a large focus of your work focuses on specifically protecting ancient forests. So what qualifies a forest to be considered an ancient forest to begin with? Ancient and endangered forests are uh, kind of technically defined by a variety of features. They're high carbon value forests. They're forests that have that are anthropogenically rare. So they're now rare because of human activity. They are home to endangered species. And if all of it's a variety of, of 25 different layers that kind of scientific data layers that kind of when laid on top of each other kind of come to sort of uh, show where ancient and endangered forests are. We have a, a tool on the Canopy uh, website that's called Forest Mapper that identifies where, where those are. Fundamentally, though, if you break it down, ancient and endangered forests are irreplaceable. They are the foundation for life on Earth. They are the lungs of the planet. They provide us with clean air and they clean our water and play a critical role in rain cycles. They stabilize our climate and are home to millions of species that we share with this planet with. And they're also incredibly beautiful. And the cupola or the canopy of the forest has been the inspiration for the cupola of the cathedrals of Europe. And so ancient and endangered forests are critical for climate. Uh, they store, you know, forests store 45% of carbon that's stored on land. And ancient and endangered forests have superior carbon storage capacity. They are critical for water, clean water. They filter our water from pollution. And in fact, many of the world's largest cities, New York, Singapore, Jakarta, a myriad of others, actually draw a significant amount of their drinking water from forest watersheds. Um, and it's an incredible cost saving for those municipalities. And then, of course, as uh, we're seeing increasingly, ancient and endangered forests are really important for 
biodiversity and loss of habitat has been one of the really key drivers behind declines in species that we've seen over the last 50 years. So there's definitely a big difference between a thousand trees within an ancient forest or endangered forest compared to somebody planting a thousand new trees. There is a, yeah, absolutely. You hit it right on the head, Camille. It's There's a fundamental difference between the habitat, the carbon, the biological functions and, and vibrancy of an ancient and endangered forest than those that are provided by a second growth forest or a plantation. Mm. So this really underscores the importance of protecting the ancient forests and endangered forests that we have left because they're irreplaceable, like you mentioned. Absolutely. And that's, uh, there is, as I mentioned earlier, there's this growing chorus from the scientific community that we need to be protecting 30 to 50% of the world's forests by 2030, ancient and endangered forests, making sure that those areas that are still, you know, relatively intact are kept standing, are given formal protection and conservation status, and that we also look at the areas that have been significantly degraded but still have critical ecological functions, like the deep peat domes that there are in Indonesia uh, mm. that currently have eucalyptus plantations on them. Some of those will need to be restored if we're really going to grapple with the climate crisis that we're facing, likewise in the Great Bear Rainforest. You mentioned this earlier, and I know you have a campaign specifically focused on viscose, which is a really commonly used fabric in fashion. Can you tell us more about how viscose in, is made and why this was an area that Canopy wanted to focus on? Yeah, viscose is surprising, I think. Um, you know, we were surprised when we first discovered the link between viscose and rayon and ancient and endangered forests. But as you mentioned, it is an increasingly used fabric within fashion within clothing. There are 150 million trees that disappear into rayon and viscose fabrics every year. That is slated to double within the next decade, which makes viscose and rayon one of the most aggressive growing threats to forest ecosystems around the world. And so what happens essentially, because it's not intuitive that you know something that stands tall and can give you a splinter ends up as that soft, silky thing that's hanging in your wardrobe. But what happens is a tree is logged, it's sent to a pulp mill. It's basically the tree's put into a giant blender with a bunch of really nasty chemicals. Uh, it's broken down into what's called a dissolving pulp. That is then sent to a viscose mill where it's put into another process with a whole lot of other chemicals and then eventually shot through a shower head and out the other side comes this soft, fluffy viscose staple fiber. And that is then fed into the clothing supply chain where it is then spun into a thread. It's then woven, dyed, and then eventually ends up on the racks and shelves of the stores that we shop at, be it in malls or uh, high-end boutiques. So there are basically two primary issues from viscose and rayon. One is the source, so where the trees come from. And the second piece is the amount of chemicals used within that production process. There's actually three. So there are those two, absolutely. The raw materials and the impact that that has on high carbon, high biodiversity value forests, these ancient and endangered forests, and the frontline communities that live within them. There is the significant toxic chemical load. Um, and then the third piece, 
which I think is really important to note, is the fact that it's actually a really uh, wasteful fiber. So when you take a tree, because it has to go through such an intense chemical breakdown, as you can imagine, to go from the, f- the form uh, that enables it to, s- it to stand as a tree in a forest to something that's soft and silky in a, in a blouse next to your skin, you end up between anywhere between 22 to 40 percent yield for the tree that is fed in uh, to that process. Mm. And so basically what you have is between 60 to 78 percent of the tree is actually doesn't end up as the end product. It's, it's kind of wasted along the way. Now, some of that is fed into the incinerators uh, to fire the mills, but with the ecological context of our times, it is a very inefficient fiber, which is why I think these next generation solutions are incredibly important. So uh, the technologies that are just starting to enter the market that are incredibly promising and, and I think help us bypass, you know, all, all three of those issues, the, the kind of inefficiency of it, uh, the impacts on forest ecosystems, as well as the chemical side. Um, so using recycled clothing rather than it degrading into methane in landfills, which is where 85% of clothing ends up, uh, having that be the next generation of clothing, next season styles, uh, there's Uh, really interesting science and technology developments around basically fermentation processes with yeast, so microbial cellulosic processes where literally you can grow T-shirts in a giant test tube for want of a better description. And then there's the ability to take straw that is left over after the food grain harvest, making sure you don't take too much so that it undermines the organic integrity of the soil. But that can also be made into you know, rayon and viscose equivalents, as well as packaging. And so those next generation solutions, I think, are really critical for us to enable and catalyze coming into market at scale. And in fact, we're just starting to see those into the market right now. Mm. And with all this said, do you think it's possible to harvest wood and cut down trees sustainably? So is that even possible? And what would regenerative forestry look like in practice? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are very few things that old growth trees should be used for. Piano sounding boards, fine furniture, violins. We don't need to be logging ancient and endangered forests and making T-shirts or books out of them. There, are, We have other options, and, and we are smarter as a species. But absolutely, uh, we can uh, have a sustainable forest industry. What we need to do, though, is kind of flip the equation or the way that we go about it. And, and we need to actually just, we need to identify how much and where we need to be protecting and then move forward with actually putting putting those areas aside from wood harvesting and, and protect and conserve them. And then once we've done that, then we can work out where and how uh, we should be logging. Mm. And, and that's where sustainable wood products that are certified according to Forest Stewardship Council um, can come from. And, and we've seen that process take place in landscapes like the Great Bear Rainforest, uh, 
the Great Bear is a really charismatic, magical landscape. It's about 16 million acres, and it stretches from the Alaskan border two-thirds of the way down to the, to the Washington border through British Columbia and Canada. And in the early 2000s, 90% of the Great Bear Rainforest was open for logging. And because of international customers engaging and bringing the incentivizing essentially the forest industry and the British Columbian government to change business as usual practice, it triggered a process of negotiations with leadership from First Nations, from the forest industry, from the from the provincial government and federal government and from the conservation community that led to 85% of the Great Bear Rainforest being formally protected or legally off limits to logging and sustainable forestry uh, taking place on the 15% of the land base that was identified as as not being required to maintain the ecological functions Mm. of that area. So it is possible. We have blueprints uh, that are working very successfully. And I think it's more around finding the the imperative and the pull and the will to replicate that in other landscapes, be it the Loser ecosystem in Indonesia or the Amazon or the Canada's boreal forests. And what can we do as individuals to support this? So you mentioned the Forest Stewardship Council certification. Are there other things that we should be looking out for to ensure that what we're purchasing helps to protect old growth forests? Yeah, I mean, as individuals, we we always uh, have choices and can play a role. So with paper products and packaging, we should always be looking for uh, products that have as high a recycled content as possible. If we can get 100%, that's the best. Uh, If it does have virgin wood fiber in it, then look for the Forest Stewardship Council, the FSC stamp. I think more broadly, we can be more mindful about what we buy and when we buy. Let's buy for a lifetime rather than for a season because our reduce, reuse, and recycle are still kind of the gold, silver, and bronze Mm. of sustainability. So I think it's bringing that sensibility with us into our our own kind of engagement in the world. And on the disposal piece, what are your thoughts on whether old wood-based products should be composted or should be recycled so they can be ground up and made into new products again? Like, is there value? Is there more value in turning that into healthy compost for our soils or more so turning it into into material that can be reused? I think at this stage, I mean, it depends on the, the product and, and what state it's in. I think as much as we can, we want to be moving to a circular economy where as much of a volume of wood products as well as other products are being repurposed and put back into the production cycle so that we alleviate the stress and the need for more forests to be logged. And the reality is after, you know, like after seven or so cycles through the paper recycling system, combined with, you know, contamination that just naturally happens through the recycling process, uh, that, you know, if you've got paper that's got pizza sauce smeared all over it, then you're probably better putting it in your in your compost uh, mm-hmm. than in the recycling system. But otherwise, let's try and gear as much of it back into the system so that we've got more fiber available. Because there have been a lot of recycled mills that have closed, recycled paper mills that have closed around North America over the course of the last couple of decades. 
And one of the big reasons for it was because they just couldn't get enough recycled fiber to mm. stay open. The last thing I wanted to ask you is you've been working on this for quite some time now, over 20 years. What has been the most effective in terms of getting the proper protection for our ancient forests and endangered forests? And what do you think we need to focus our efforts on going forward to get that protection at a global level? I would say the most effective that I've seen, uh, be it in landscapes like the Great Bear Rainforest or the Boreal or, or even in, in landscapes in Indonesia, has been when you uh, have large customers of the forest products industry stepping forward and advocating for change and advocating for a fundamental change in practice and for large-scale conservation. And that, because of their incredible purchasing influence and political influence, uh, that uh, seems to be a really powerful lever for motivating or creating the conditions for success for the forest industry and for governments to change business as usual practice and to put in place a more visionary approach to the way that they actually think about the forests and the landscapes. So that's that's been the most effective uh, measure that I've seen uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. Which is also why we need to continue to obviously make our purchases count in the right places and continue to have dialogues with these corporations so that they can hopefully continue putting these positive pressures on the industry? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Canopy works with 750 companies that are showing leadership on uh, environmental issues. Many of them are listed on our website, which is canopyplanet.org. Those brands are absolutely worthy of being supported for the environmental actions and leaderships that they're taking within their sectors and within their supply chains and oftentimes with, with government decision makers. And then if, if you have a favorite fashion brand or publisher or your, where you buy your kind of online retail uh, items, if they're not listed on that, then don't underestimate the power of sending a note, a letter, an email to them, urging them to sort of take action to reach out to Canopy and develop a formal policy on an issue and, and join, be it Canopy style, I'll work with the fashion industry, or the work that we're just starting to ramp up on packaging or the myriad of other opportunities that there are to be part of the solution. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to tell you more about our sponsor. Buffy's new comforter, The Breeze, is hypoallergenic and is 100% plant-based and cruelty-free. No down, no polyester, but made entirely from eucalyptus fiber, which uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow and, in bed, helps us to stay cozy without overheating. I'm actually trying it out myself right now. It is super soft, and personally, I do prefer natural fibers for things that come into contact with my skin, so this is definitely a winner for me. If you're interested, you can try one out in your own bed for free, and if you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. For $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Buffy.co and enter your discount code GREENDREAMER. Again, that's B-U-F-F-Y dot C-O and GREENDREAMER for $20 off. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? 
not social media, but late night comedy is a bit of a lifeline at the moment. Um, oh, Palais for the Ocean. I love it. The mm. beauty of our natural world never ceases to inspire me, and it's so beautifully curated. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? It's such a gift to work on these issues. What's one thing you do for your health regularly or that you're working on? Mm. Uh, I exercise and I laugh. That's, t- that's <laughs> that. two. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Mm, I'm trying to increase Canopy's budget so that I can work a little less. <laughs> what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Oh my God, hundreds of thousands of kids in the street and the work that we do with business leaders and how many of them are stepping in and picking up the baton of environmental leadership. Um, Well, thank you so much for this deeply insightful conversation. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you. So where can we follow and support your work online and get companies that we love to work with you? Uh, Well, Canopy's website is canopyplanet.org. And we have an Instagram account and Twitter account for the same. And then personally, my Instagram and and Twitter accounts are Nicole Rycroft1. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh, you know, like having come from, like I was a physiotherapist and an elite level athlete. Like I knew nothing about running an environmental organization (laughs) and working on global forest conservation with the business community. So I would just say you don't need to have a PhD. Our time's call on us to take that fire that we feel in our bellies and put it into action and be audacious. Ask for what you want. Uh, You just might get it. Um, And if I can do this, then you definitely can. Be audacious and ask for what you want. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you immensely to our listener patrons for your support. It would be an honor to have you join me on Patreon and in our network as well if you're not yet there. So if you're a regular listener or if Green Dreamer has inspired you in any way, you can now support the show and get access to bonus content starting at $1 per month. For more information, just head to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much for being here and for your consideration to become a patron. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. 